This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello, I'm Jake Cantor and welcome to Talking TV. On the show this week, it's Destination Top Gear as Andy Willman drops by to explain what keeps fueling the motoring show's popularity. Also on the podcast, the story behind ITV's continue rude health, plus the best chin-strokey moments from our trip to the Oxford Media Convention. And finally, in our preview section, we'll look under the bonnet of BBC Two's Britain's Banger Racers and the new iPlayer drama shorts. That's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. We have a packed studio for our new section, so I'm pleased to welcome Broadcast's international guru Peter White and Sam Barcroft, the boss of Factual Indie Barcroft Productions. Welcome, chaps. Hello. Morning. Morning, morning. Also with us is the irrepressible, unmistakable broadcast columnist Kate Bulkley. Hello, Kate. How are you? I'm well. How are you, Jim? I'm good. I'm good. Now, you're with us to talk Oxford Media Convention, so that seems like a good place to start. Director General Tony Hall used his wide-ranging keynote speech to launch a passionate defence of the licence fee, but he stressed that tough decisions lie ahead for the corporation, sparking speculation that services could be closed as the BBC moves away from salami-slicing-style savings projects and looks for bigger-ticket efficiencies. Kate, this wasn't expressed explicitly, but it feels like the BBC is paving the way for a debate about its services. Well, he explicitly said £100 million more is going. That's what he explicitly yeah. said. And he explicitly said, I don't want to cut drama, and I certainly think the iPlayer is something we need to focus on, so I don't think he's gonna, we're going to see any cuts there. But yeah, I think that this amount of money means that there are cer- certain services may be at risk, and obviously the obvious one is BBC Four. Do you um, think so? Do you think that, was that the sense in the room, BBC Four? The sense in the room was, yeah, it's, if it's going to be that much money, if, you, if you're not going to salami slice, which is what he doesn't want to do, in other words, take little bits out of everything, Thing, you're going to have to get rid of a major service. So you get rid of BBC Four, maybe you extend CBBC, you know, you get some spectrum back, you cut, I don't know, what is it, 40 or 60 million of a budget. So, I mean, I think there's certainly a lot of concern among people at the BBC to do that. The other thing he could do, I mean, keep in mind, he's done this once before when he announced the, the end of six radio. And of course, he didn't. But anyway, they and then everyone went up in arms and said, no, you can't cut that. So maybe this is just sort of a way to test something, to throw something yeah, yeah. in the water and see what happens. See how audience might react. As an independent producer, Sam, is it always a bit concerning when the BBC talks about potentially cutting back services? No, I think it's an opportunity, actually, because obviously, if you you cut your core teams in-house, you have to find your hours from somewhere. So I think, although it's scary for people that work within the BBC, any kind of reorganisation of major broadcasters only offers opportunities yeah, for the independent sector. Yeah, but this isn't cutting in-house production. So I, if you cut a channel, you have less commissions. Possibly, but I think overall the BBC... A lot of Tony's speech seemed to eventually be about efficiencies in the public sector and seemed to be aimed more at the public and politicians than at um, people like me who make television. And so I think that with those efficiencies, they will have to continue, I think, politically and for the BBC to continue with the licence fee. So more a message to the government that the BBC's prepared to get his house in order before charter renewal? I thought it was quite a stern and strong speech, really, overall. And I think it's really good that the BBC He's got a leader who's willing to stand up for it and to fight the fight. And what do you make of uh, Hall's ambition to extend the licence fee to cover catch-up on iPlayer? 
couldn't really believe that the licence fee and the TV licence didn't apply to iPlayer. <laughs> the point is that there's... Uh, only he, live he streaming. Yeah, he estimates that 500,000 folks are just live streaming st- or just watching stuff on catch-up and they're not paying the licence fee. They're all fee. students, all surely. All students. <laughs> How on earth would you find them? <laughs> who knows? I mean, who knows? Well, the government, well, the BBC has been sort of quite secretive on this in the past, sparking speculation in the sort of right-wing press that, it's, you know, the number's much bigger than it actually uh, reckons it is. I mean, it just feels like a natural step, doesn't it, to use the iPlayer in this way and make sure that people are logging in potentially with their licence fee number. Well, well, I asked him on stage, I said, you know, I said, you know, so what do you mean? Do you want to have more licence fee money to, to cover these people? Basically, he kind of, you know, danced around. He said, we need to modernise you know, how we're doing this was the term. There's a great um, benefit in regulating iPlayer in that way because obviously you then get much more data about your watchers, which is obviously incredibly valuable given the acquisitions of major IT platforms around the world. Very Um, much so, and something that Channel 4 is doing quite extensively as well. uh, Indeed, and and quite aggressively. That's a really good point, actually, because he did actually mention that. He mentioned Channel 4 on stage, I think it was in the Q&A, and he said, you know, what Channel 4 is doing is really interesting, and we've got to figure out in a PSB context, what do we do with data that we collect? So clearly he's thinking about things like that going forward. Well, the BBC's watching us. Uh, Let's move on to the other big story of the week, which was ITV's annual results. Uh, The commercial broadcaster posted another very decent set of numbers, with pre-tax profits rising 30% to $435 million on the back of revenues of $2.75 billion. Uh, crucially, ITV also showed what Adam Crozier described as clear and consistent evidence that it is less reliant on the ad market. To this end, 44% of its revenue came from ITV Studios, digital projects and its pay TV strategy. Kate, we've said it here on Talking TV before, but this is a business transformed, do you think? Oh, I think he's done a great job. Just look at the stock price. He actually upped the dividend. Um, He's certainly gotten a lot more profit, a lot more revenue. But I think you have to drill down into the numbers to actually look at where these ups are coming from. And a lot of it is, is basically buying folks and buying cash flow and buying revenues, which is what you do when you buy an independent production company. Buying production companies. Yeah, who actually has some revenue. So, I mean, it's not, that's not a bad thing, but you have to understand that it's not as if it's organic growth. This is acquired growth. He was at pains to say that organic growth at ITV Studios was up 7%. But, you know, it's clear that they've they've spent a lot of cash. They're prepared to pay up to £300 million for the acquisitions they've made already. And America's a big focus, isn't it, Pete? Could you talk us through their ambition there and, and, and why it matters? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, they claim to be one of the top five producers in in the United States, it'll be interesting to see what happens with those indies because it's it's sort of bought a ragtag bunch of, of indies over there. They talk about drama and yet they seem to have bought a very uh, big deal of factual producers. The only indie there that has got any experience is Think Factory, which is the company that run by Leslie Grief, the producer of Hatfield and McCoy's. They've got a couple of things um, in terms of drama. They've got a project called Texas Rising, which is the uh, a sort of reboot of, of Walker, Texas Ranger. But other than that, you're talking about Gurney, which makes Duck Dynasty, and you're talking about the company they just bought, Digger, which is... Um, Tony DeSanto and Liz Gately's company, the two former MTV commissioners, that's a bet for the future. They don't actually have anything of their own that's going through at the moment. So international revenues at ITV Studios increased 56% to $266 I mean, do you think this could be genuinely transformative if they continue to buy in the US? Yeah, I mean, it depends what they're going to buy next. And he he sort of alluded to buying more. So it'll be interesting to see if they are going to buy some scripted companies. Uh, You have to remember, there aren't that many uh, independent 
scripted producers in the States. They're all sort of wrapped up in the studio system, so it'd be very unlikely that they would pick up a, a Jerry Bruckheimer or a, a one of these producers very much tied into the studio system. So there's not a huge amount of companies that they could buy to to get the sort of drama growth that, that, that he sort of alluded to. But, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Maybe they know something that, that I don't. Perhaps they do. Should we move on to our final piece in the news section, which is our commission of the fortnight? Uh, which this week is the resurrection of BBC One's stylized period crime thriller Ripper Street. The tiger aspect drama has been brought back from the brink by Amazon and BBC America in a deal that will ultimately see it return to BBC One. Pete, you were at the press conference this week. It feels like quite a significant thing, doesn't it? It does. Amazon was coming into the market. They rebranded the Love Film Service. So this is a really good point. This is their sort of big first thing. It'd be interesting to see if they do any more. They were very cagey about what they were planning to do in further UK commissions and whether they would do any more. They they hinted at it, but it wasn't really... You didn't get the sense in the room that they were they were particularly bothered about talking to, to British producers. So we'll see if, if that comes up. I mean, Ripper Street, great. You know, you bring back something from the dead. Uh, Netflix did it with The Kid. And, and, and that bought them some, some goodwill. And, and obviously the fans who, you know, launched this campaign to save it, um, you know, might tune in. So that, that would be good news for Amazon. I'm not sure you'll see too many of, of these in the future, though. Amazon Studios at first was doing that kind of crowd-sourced programming. You know, they were having people sort of, you know, send in scripts or whatever, and then they would do little videos, and then people were supposed to vote on it in the Amazon. I mean, give me a break. I mean, talked about lowest common denominator television. That's what it felt like to me. This is very different. This is a franchise. We, they know it works to a certain extent. Let's pick it up. Let's drag it forward. It's much more Netflix-type strategy, and I'm sure they're going to start employing their analytics in so a very do, different way. Do we think that other brands might get revived online? It's already happened, yeah. <laughs> Possibly. There was the joke that, that they would try and bring back Soldier Soldier in the room. Um, I'm not sure too many people would be bothered about that. But um, yeah, possibly. I, I think the worry is that, and then this has happened in the States, as soon as a show gets cancelled in the States, they, they start this, oh, well, we're going to start talking to the digital platforms. And you think, well, the digital platforms don't really want other people's shows that haven't performed. There's two, one or two instances where it does work, and Ripper Street definitely got them the news value that they wanted. But I'm not sure there's, there's a huge and great value in bringing back shows that don't work on traditional television <laughs> but BBC One have got a really good deal out of this haven't they they've got a show for, for very little money and it will get very good ratings on BBC because there will be a lot of people that don't watch it on, on Amazon so they'll, they'll, they've will they've actually come out really well for this yeah Charlotte Moore was speaking at a BBC drama dinner this week and she refused to sort of commit to where she's going to schedule it given that it already <laughs> have been online for quite some time so it'd be interesting to see whether they, they go with the 9 o'clock slot still or perhaps push it a bit later I don't know what, do you've got any thoughts on that, Sam? Well, I think it's part of a broader shift at the moment, which is these mega multinational companies wanting to grab customers. And I think that it's really interesting that BT have done it by giving away football for free. And um, I think companies like Amazon are blending different consumer experiences in terms of online shopping and online VOD in a really clever way that I think is shifting everything. And I think in the next couple of years, we're all going to be accessing so many different things via brands that we always only thought did one thing. I thought BT made telephones um, and uh, let us make <laughs> telephone calls, but who knows what we'll be getting from BT in the next couple of years. So you're going to pitch to Amazon? What do you think? Well, we'll certainly be at Stream, and yeah. it's a big focus for us this year. Um, and I think it's very exciting, uh, the online space at the moment. is The more is customers, the better. And just finally, quickly, we're talking about these online players, but 
both the BBC and ITV this week have pointed to the fact that, you know, 90% of TV viewing is still done through linear television. Are we reading too much into this? Is, is you know, are we perhaps getting too excited too early? Not at all. I mean, Tony Hall referenced Mail Online in his um, uh, very early on in his speech at Oxford. And, and I think Danny Cohen said earlier this year at BAFTA, he was competing for screen time with computer games, with online websites and everything else. And so statistics can be, the BBC have done very well about talking about the record numbers for iPlayer in January as well. So I, yeah. I think I think there's two different PR tracks going on. But it's clear that they all feel that there's a, there's a genuine threat here. Uh, we'll, we'll leave it there for the news this week. Uh, my thanks to Peter White, Sam Barcroft and Kate Bulkley. Moving on, Top Gear as we know it turned 21 series old this year. But has it come of age? I wouldn't bet on it. Still as cheeky, irreverent and controversial as ever, the current series has stuck to a formula that has won Top Gear an army of global fans as well as some notable detractors. Our guest today is the unseen cog in the Top Gear engine. He has worked on the show since 2002 and his friendship with Jeremy Clarkson extends back to their school days. It's a partnership that can lay claim to many creative highlights and much more besides. Before introducing Andy Wilman, here's Jeremy Clarkson on typically spirited form in the latest series. I've done. I've accidentally crashed into Lake Como. But it's okay, because if I push this little button here, the wheels have folded up and now I'm on a jet ski. I know exactly what music we have to play now. No, not that! Cue the bomb! <laughs> Andy, you're wincing a little bit. <laughs> I'm not wincing, I'm just thinking, oh my God, male middle-aged fantasy, be James Bond, and we've got a jet ski. And then the other bit that makes me laugh is it goes, the wheels have folded up, and I always think he's going to say, the wheels have fallen off, and like that's the end of the programme, you know. A but, metaphor for the show. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> oh, Christ, they've fallen off. But... Um, Loved it. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, so, 12 years on the show, seven as executive producer, is that right? Uh, something, something like that. that. Yeah. What keeps getting you up for work every morning? Well, okay, the show going on, it keeps sort of, you know, it's a self fulfilling <laughs> prophecy. It gets you up. <laughs> it has because, to be up. Yeah, I think if, if, we, if we were making one of those returnable formulas that is a returnable formula that's rigid because of the way it's structured, that's going to be hard. You'd be looking for a new challenge by now. What gets me up is that we never knew where this was going to go, how long it was going to go. And I remember saying to the studio director, Brian, back in 2003, when we saw it was taking off, and I went, bloody hell, we could get 50 shows out of this, you know. And now we're on a 100 and something or other, 80-odd or whatever. You know, and then you'd revise it and go, bloody hell, I could get, like, 100 shows out of this, and so on and so on. And you expect the drop-off to come. And when it doesn't happen which, touch wood, it hasn't, your ego kicks in that you're going to keep this thing going. So there's that, and then there's that natural challenge that you've got to refresh yourself each series. Not in the the main pegs in the ground, you know, three middle-aged blokes cocking about. Those things stay. But it's probably the only major series where, if you're interviewed about it, people say, 
what are you doing this series? Which they probably wouldn't ask of the producer of X Factor or Apprentice or whatever, with all respect to them, because they kind of know what you're going to do that yeah, series. Yeah, they, they know the format well. Yeah, whereas people say to us, ooh, what treats have you got lined up, and so on and so on. So how but, do you go about keeping it fresh? There's two things. There's what are we going to do that series, what ideas we're going to come up with. And they come from everywhere. Jeremy, Richard, James come up with, you know, I'm blessed with three presenters who are, I'm not blowing smoke up their asses. They are, they're journalists. You know, Jeremy in particular is a tabloid journalist. So he's schooled in attention span and people losing their attention span. He's hardwired to think, what else do we do to entertain people? So they come up with stuff. Then you've got a team of people in the office and we all come up with stuff too. How many uh, is in the development team? Small. I mean, development team, I'm laughing as you say that. It's, um, it's <laughs> the phrase the you don't recognise. Yeah. There's about seven or eight on the production side, which is tiny, actually, for what we do. And then we kick stuff around and, you know, what stays, stays, and what doesn't, doesn't. I think my one regret is in the early days, we obviously there was more to play with as the show opened up and you realise what you could do. We've done a lot of things, so it's getting harder. And at the same time, because there's a demand, there's an expectation of what we do, it's become more like a machine. So there's less of that going to the pub, giggling, you know, throwing crap at the wall and going, ah, what about this? What about that? And there's a bit less of that now, which is a shame because out of that comes good stuff. You know, if I say to Jeremy, come in for a brainstorm, his face always sags because he knows it's going to be a time limit. There's going to be flip charts. There's structure to it. And he says, why don't we all go to the pub or go somewhere where we can smoke and then we can muck about? Which, and actually he's right, you know, that's what we should be doing. Yeah. The other thing that keeps it fresh is something I wrote about a short while ago is because the show is so intrinsically linked to those three, it changes, it morphs with them. That is all interlinked and that keeps it going because it's kind of their lives on telly is a kind of like their motoring lives and... It's a reality so show. Is that what you're, is that what you're it saying? It kind of is, yeah, because you... In an like, odd way. There is little things like, you know, Jeremy's going, oh, I need my glasses to read something. He didn't 10 years ago, you know. <laughs> or he will come in and go, my daughter's just passed a driving test. And so it made me think, why don't we do a film about cars for 17-year-olds? But his daughter was probably 10 when we started, you know, that sort of stuff. And then you see it more on these big specials that we do. You know, they bicker and, and they're getting more knackered and it gets harder for them. So that ageing process actually keeps the editorial fresh. It's part of the if show. If you get my drift. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Of, yeah. The other th- remarkable thing about Top Gear I, I find when I watch it is the access that you get to places. Uh, I mean, the Chernobyl episode stands in my mind from this series. Yarp. How do you go about securing access and coming up with those, uh, those ideas and, and, and getting in? We're very polite, young, well-brought-up <laughs> British. You ask very nicely. We are. I mean, you know everyone thinks that we're like hooligans or sort of go around getting into trouble. We are so polite on the phone to start with. And we always promise people, we'll leave your place as we found it, you know. <laughs> and, and that must be quite tough. It is going, the, the sorry, reads, sorry so. when you go, sorry about that. Yeah, sorry, with that went on wrong. There's an intelligence about us. It's, it takes a lot of intelligence to be that stupid, to, you know, for the finished result to look that stupid. And there's a lot of organisation goes on, something like that. And if you go into Chernobyl, they know actually you cover everything off, that you're quite slick about it. And then you give the guys that bubble for them to go off and be in danger. You can push it some there. And so we you do set the parameters we... and, and then you, yeah, then you yeah, can, there's some you can play within and that. Sometimes you burst out of it. Sometimes that goes wrong. And sometimes we don't deliver what we promise to people. Uh, it gets a bit 
you know, cheekier. But what can I do about that? Uh, just on the cheekiness. I mean, it's always always reason. It's done in a reasonably knowing way. Yeah. But do do you set out to be controversial? No. But you must know when Jeremy said something. No, we reasonably don't sit, close to the we, wire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you but think, what we well, shall we keep do. that in, or should we leave it? But that's the point. We don't sit down with a pen and paper and go, "How can we get into trouble? How can we make controversy?" What we do do is, if we come up with something that we want to do, and we know it might be controversial. We still carry on. And there is a difference there because it's like setting out to be naughty. We don't do that. We just keep going. I mean, what was the last one we got into trouble with? It was probably... Was it the hot hatchbacks in the in the, in the the fake supermarket you created where you were, I'm, well, I'm you were wrecking some... it and I think there was complaints that you'd, uh, you'd wasted all the food? Yeah, and I've got... And I'm, you know, my answer to that is, sorry, I'm not in charge of food preservation for the world it's it's not my moral issue there's a budget to destroy things or do with them what you will and that's not my job i'm not interested in that complaint what about the complaint that it's a waste of money well there's a budget to make tv if you define everything by in you know food can only be eaten and it's so on it goes clothes can only be worn so they're a prop essentially i don't really care about that sort of thing because there's always going to be a complaint of that nature. Lorry drivers murder prostitutes. We knew that was going to cause some havoc. But we actually knew it was a ridiculous thing because there's an urban myth. And here we go again now. I'm doing it all over again. You get a lot of you know emails from lorry drivers and notes going that we laughed our socks off about it. We won't stop if we know something's going to cause controversy if we like it. But like I say, we don't set out to. And so it thing, has to be editorially justified. It has to it has to work for the show. For, yeah, for and we have our it. own internal thing, which is what we call the John Humphreys test, which is could you take a barrage from John Humphreys about what you've done? <laughs> and if you can't, then it goes. But if you think, yeah, no, I, you know, all right, he'll probably win, but I can, you know, I can go down fighting, then we keep it in. Yeah, that's that's where we. So if you it. can do a better job than George Entwistle, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Is is that a fun part of the job? Is that something you enjoy, pushing the boundaries? Well, who wants to grow up? The amount of dads who go, oh God, I wish I had their job. I wish I did what they did. It isn't actually they want to drive Lamborghinis up and down airfields. I think it's that there is no responsibility. They look, they look at Jeremy Jones and Richard in the middle of Bolivia or this year in Burma, you know, and they're, they're in a truck stop, a Burmese truck stop, living having a really shit night, and they get up in the morning looking like shit but you know every everybody who works in a bank is thinking why can't I be there doing that I know you've come armed with some stats one that I picked up on was that Top Gear Africa Special was the biggest show on iPlayer last year I might I mean, get a sandwich board actually. I'm going to go <laughs> please, down Oxford Street get your flip chart out yeah. in the, as you um, do in the, in the brainstorming just meetings just tap people on the shoulders <laughs> in shops why does it resonate with people online I think there's quite a young audience who you know I'd imagine people who watch Countryfile or Downton or Antiques Roadshow, if they're an older, if they are an older audience, they are, and I'm, I'm that. I'm 51 now. I want to watch TV in the moment. I don't watch iPlayer, but I think a lot of our audience aren't like that. It's kind of like they plan their own schedule because it's, it doesn't happen by word of mouth unless you've got a really good episode out. It's almost like people know what they're going to do with it. So it's like, like I say, it's their own internal schedule. And what are the stats you have? Bigger than the, than the Olympic opening ceremony for 2012. <laughs> Olympic opening ceremony. <laughs> Go away. No, that was the one we always wanted to beat because that that's been at number one for a while, the Olympic opening ceremony. So that got three point, I don't know, off the top of my head, six million. 
Uh, 3.6 million. And we've got a couple above that now in the all-time top 20, which I'm chuffed about. I think the Bolivia special, because it's been around so long, has, has racked them up, and that's number one. Then so the Af- repeats have helped buoy oh, the yeah. figure. Oh, yeah. And then Africa, because with Africa was a two-part special, and the part one is at number two. must mean that part two was a really shit programme, because that's not <laughs> up there. I think also you get a generation of kids coming in. I mm. see that with my son at school, his mates, you know, eight-year-olds coming, ten-year-olds coming, where they're going to go but iPlayer. And just finally, uh, you signed a three-year deal in 2012. Can we expect another one in a couple of years? They're going to start talking to us soon. Yeah. yeah. Every deal that's done is done with the notion that the show will be on the floor, you know, scraping the barrel. Some probably say it is already by the time the three years is up. I mean, the overnight so, ratings are, are some daft. of the best in years. Yeah, they're daft, yeah. I think that's part to do with winter and all that sort of stuff, but... There's clearly an appetite. It's still there. So, yeah, we'll start talking soon because we, we haven't got an end game plan. When we look stupid or when we think we are flogging a dead horse. But that hasn't happened, this series. I think it's better than the last series, which was a bit ropey. I think this series is good. And the special, which is coming up now, is good. And that point I said earlier about ageing, you know, we actually can't keep going by ageing until we look daft or we ourselves. I have to ask one final question. Yeah. Former BBC comms boss, Ed Williams, said this week that some of the BBC's biggest brands, including Top Gear, may not be around in five years. Yeah. It doesn't sound like that's going to be the case. It sounds like the appetite is there on your part. Well, his publisher's got to get a press release out to get some coverage, <laughs> hasn't they? Yeah. We maybe he's, no, looking, maybe he's looking for a new job. Yeah. <laughs> no, nobody's rung us up yet and said, can you bugger off? That hasn't happened yet. But you're going to have a new controller at BBC Two. Well, yes, and if they ride a bicycle and drive a Prius or it's Ken Livingston, we are screwed. We really are. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, Andy, thank you very much for joining us. Top Gear continues on BBC Two this Sunday at 8pm. Welcome back. Now, make yourself comfy because it's time for some previews. Joining me on the talking TV sofa again are Peter White and Sam Barcroft. Uh, We stick with the motoring theme for BBC Two's Fast and Fearless, Britain's Banger Racers, a two-part boundless documentary that has gained access to the colourful world of banger racing at the Arena Essex Raceway. Before we get stuck in, here's 13-year-old driver Alfie Jones getting some parental guidance. It seems that when when someone who's a bit tasty comes behind you, you seem to fall apart a bit. And then once they get past you, you pick up the pace and try and catch them. But by then it's too late. They've, they've got the momentum and they're gone. It's almost like you've got to show them a bit of authority. Slap the side of their car, stamp your authority on their mouth, yeah? Yeah. Let them know you're there, put them under pressure, how they pressure you. Yeah. He has to stand up for himself out there, you know. There's only, only so much poking you can take before you poke back. And that's what he needs to do. Pete, do you want to get us started on this? Yeah, it was a very solid but unspectacular hour of television. I um, well, despite the crashes, despite the crashes, I just thought it was it was a bit boring. There was a, a, a great quote in the in the show from one of the uh, from one of the best bangers, crashes. Uh, Golf is boring, fishing is boring. Some people might think that banger racing is pointless, and that was sort of how I felt. <laughs> what about you, Sam? Well, I love banger racing. I used to get taken so this to like banger your, this racing. Like this was like my dream hour of Factual <laughs> on BBC Two. I thought it was really brilliant. I'm going to disagree with Pete. I, I, I think, I think it, the ending was kind of a pace. Basically, you didn't get the payoff that you might have wanted out of the ending, which I, as a 
documentary maker is kind of your worst nightmare really um, when you set up for a big ending that goes slightly flat but I thought it was really clever because I thought it got us into quite sparky territory in this kind of world of Essex working class um, kind of enthusiasts which was personified by one brilliant shot at the Essex Raceway, which is a wide from above the stands, which were just packed with high-vis coats. But they weren't the stewards, they were the audience. And <laughs> um, and I just thought the characters, young Alfie, what a lad, you know, poor kids getting Great bullied character. at school, is taking it out on the track, and even mum and dad are having a go at him. And I just thought, I, I, was, I, I was in love with the world. You know, our armed robber brothers who um, were desperate to have just spectacular crashes they didn't even care if they won or lost you know and I, and I did love it um, and I thought the trick which was wonderful was to be in a car crash kind of world but actually to give it a BBC Two, non-exploitative, fairly warm. Do you not think they were taking the piss out of them? I thought they were taking the piss out Did of them you? a little bit. Yeah. Did you? I'm really interested by that because I think a lot of television does that, especially in a working class. Especially with the mum space. and Alfie's mum, you know, saying that he should have hit him. I just thought it, it, I thought it was a bit cheap that, uh, when I was watching it. That's interesting because I feel like that about quite a lot of television, especially in that um, slightly edgy, slightly sparky kind of um, community environment but I actually I actually really enjoyed it and I thought if I'd been a contributor I'd have been very pleased with the way I'd been portrayed because I think you, there was a lot more I think that you could have got out of those situations that would have felt slightly more dramatic and might have got more shock and awe more PR for the show but I actually thought it was that was toned down and it was reasonably it was... constrained wasn't it I mean it was and the director although you could hear him asking questions he let them do the talking large largely I think it's interesting for the BBC to commission something in this space which feels like it could have been a great Channel 4 or Channel 5 Obstock series uh, a la Gypsies, you know. It would have been a, it would have had a very different treatment on those two channels, wouldn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely, but they I think I think it deli- I didn't feel let down by the constraints of it being on BBC 2. I felt um, happy about that because I don't necessarily want I wanted to like the characters I didn't want to hate them and, and see them as pantomime villains but I suppose that also means it's not as electrifying an hour as it might have been on Channel 4 potentially And how hard is it to, to find those sorts of worlds and gain access? I think it's a lot easier if you're BBC Two than it might be if you're an independent producer uh, because people feel the contributors feel the trust of a major brand like that and and can feel um, feel safe in the knowledge that there are big compliance departments and and that these brands need to look after them carefully. Whereas if you're approached by an independent producer as an individual, you're just going to obviously have more concerns. So I think these worlds are all around us and um, and um, if you're as a producer, genuinely enthusiastic about people's stories, and people want to tell them to you. So I think it's it can be tricky to trickier to get into major institutions than it than it is to um, get alongside people in um, normal communities. I think. Yeah, and I felt it was very well structured because uh, you knew it was building up to the races at the end, and although you felt the payoff wasn't as good as you hoped it might be i was very much invested in their stories we did you feel the same Peter? i, I thought it was a bit cynical especially with <laughs> especially with the fella who uh, who was having his last race and then his last race was a bit of a dud i, I just thought yeah i didn't i didn't agree don't agree. No? no no not your bag not clearly bag. no you um, find me on the essex banger track anytime soon <laughs> <laughs> uh, the fast and fearless britain's banger races is under starters orders for sunday the 9th of march on bbc2
Up next, uh, something a little different. Yes, it's three iPlayer-only drama shorts for BBC Three. Now, each is very different, so let me give you a flavour of what to expect. First up is Plea, the story of an inner-city kid attempting to rid her mum of an abusive new boyfriend. The twist is it's all told in rhyme. Also available is Tag, which depicts two teachers locked in a destructive game of Tag on the day their school is closing down. Finally, we have My Jihad, which is the story of an unlucky-in-love Muslim bachelor who finds an unlikely suitor en route home from a speed dating night. Here's a clip of Nazir putting his foot in it with the potential love interest for Mida. All I'm saying is religion has to come first. All right, then self-apply, Mr Mufti. <laughs> Would you be willing to marry a widow? Yeah. What about a divorcee? Yeah. What about a single mother? Come on. I'm not a saint. A widow and a divorcee is one thing, but a single mother, somebody else's child, that's a part of somebody else. I don't know. Sam, is there anyone that you'd like to, to talk about particularly and get us started on? I thought Flea was amazing, actually. This is the one in rhyme. Yeah, yeah. I, I've always wanted to make a film which is all in rhyme, but that's due to my hip-hop roots, I think. But I think I just thought this was a really clever idea. Um, I thought that it was filmed brilliantly. I thought that um, the key character was fantastic and... I just thought it was written beautifully. I just thought everything about it was exciting and enjoyable and well-crafted. And I just thought it was a brilliant thing for iPlayer to premiere. Uh, Short, sweet, um, well-delivered, well-done. And it will hit the, the digital audience brilliantly as well because young people will love to watch it. You know, three cheers for everybody that was involved in it. I Pete, it do you share yeah. those sentiments? Yeah, I agree. I thought it was incredible. Yeah, no, I, I thought it was wonderful. It, it felt fresh. It felt different. It felt like something I hadn't seen before, um, and which is exactly what I think they're trying to achieve with those iPlayer dramas. I thought the writing, as you say, I was a bit sceptical when I'd read the synopsis of, of All in Verse as not a hip-hop fan, but, but I thought it was it was fantastic. I, I thought they did a really good. Apparently, good job. the pitch was given in verse as well. Oh, fantastic! I mean, Cat Jones, it, you know, this young writer. This is exactly what we need. This is an opportunity for someone who has come, you know, from a slightly different background, slightly different way of of approaching this. And it was just, you know, it, it's a perfect, perfect example of what iPlayer should be doing. And what about my jihad, which uh, I guess had, had a bit more of a story to it? How difficult is it to tell something as complicated as that drama? You know, which touched on social issues and love and uh, you know all within the space of 15 minutes that's that's a tough task isn't it I don't think it is actually as somebody that makes a lot of short form I think it's a lot easier to to make a great 12 minutes than it is to make a great hour but I really thought that this was a great idea that was solidly written but I just didn't think the performances necessarily pulled it through you know I, I I loved the story and I loved the 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 thought around it and and I was interested in the world and I wanted to love it but I just didn't think it quite delivered on screen but I would be interested in seeing an hour you know that was what I was in you know I did think it was a, a, a clever place to go and that I would go and watch that film um, I think it's really pertinent and I was really interested in what I was learning I did get take home from it which is really important I think in you know contemporary drama so you felt like you learned about their culture and, and yeah and... I think this felt like more of a pilot to me it felt like I'd like them to go back and do it again as a long form and that I would really enjoy watching that long form but I might change some of the cast and I just might 
tighten it up a little bit. Pete, really. you're nodding. Uh, out of the three of them, I felt that the same. It was sweet, but I felt it was the most piloted of the... It felt like the, a pilot compared to the other two, which felt like standalone shows. Uh, my favourite was, was Tag. Such a neat idea. You couldn't have done that in an hour of television. That is just a very short, sharp... Daisy Haggard is fantastic. She's the, the, the comedy exec in, in episodes that doesn't laugh. She's fantastic. I just thought it was a really simple, fun idea. Although you could see the end coming... It was still entertaining to watch. Do you know what? Uh, I know I'm going to sound like my granddad. I just didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I sat there, I watched it, and I went, I don't understand. And and maybe that's my own personal limitations. But with anything conceptual, you're either going to get it and love it, or you're going to not get it and probably hate it. And I'm afraid this kind of jar of marmite wasn't for me but I thought the production values were good and I thought the performances were excellent but I just couldn't connect with the concept so for me it, it wouldn't be something that I got excited about it was conceptual that's what this is for so well done the BBC for taking some risks I think that's really important to say um, and well if done. this is uniquely BBC isn't it I don't think anyone else would do this. I, th no. I think this is what Channel 4 should be doing, and I think they've got the talent to do it. But I just think we'd love other channels to be taking risks like this. I think it's it's what we should be doing. It's a great right. opportunity for these writers, and it's the perfect, perfect arena for them. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned Kat Jones, who wrote Flea. Uh, My Jihad was written by Shaquille Ahmed, and Tag was by Catherine Chandler. The BBC Drama Shorts will be made available on iPlayer from the 11th of March. And that's your lot for this episode. My thanks to all of our guests, Kate Bulkley, Sam Barcroft, Peter White and Andy Woolman. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If so, or indeed not, why not voice your opinions on broadcastnow.co.uk or tweet me on at Jake underscore Cantor. As you may have figured out, uh, we love a good debate. I'm Jake Cantor. The producer was Matt Hill. And until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. 